This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Craig Lapsley. Craig is a former Victorian Emergency Management Commissioner and he joined me to discuss the findings of the Bushfire Royal Commission report that was just handed down and what we must do to prepare for the upcoming bushfire season. Craig has been advocating alongside fellow emergency leaders for climate action to put climate change at the centre of Australia's bushfire and natural disasters response. It's a real privilege and honour to speak with Craig and um, I do thank you Craig for joining us today to delve into the findings, the recommendations of the Bushfire Royal Commission that we just saw handed down last week, late last week and also to talk about these issues from your perspective um, with your great depth and um, breadth of expertise in emergency services. So thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, good morning, and so it's a great opportunity. It's probably it's very timely actually when you look at the weather that's across Victoria because it's starting to sort of come in uh, that summer feel about it. So uh, it's it's a good chance to talk about fires, but it's also I think um, the Royal Commission was a little bit broader than fires, although fires were the you know, the fires of last year brought it um, to the need, but they tried to make sure they looked at um, natural hazards so a little bit broader, which I think is relevant when you think about climate change because it's just not about fires alone. Climate's got an impact on uh, on all sorts of uh, weather-based emergencies and, uh, you know, Australia being, I suppose, a country that suffers all of them in one way or another. Absolutely. And we had seen uh, floods as well being such a, a major issue and massive hailstones in uh, Queensland and Victoria recently that did huge amounts of damage to people's properties. So there are um, many, many features of climate change and certainly um, it can be direct and indirect um, as a cause. Uh, and it's true, as you say, they were focusing on natural disasters, although it was certainly born out of the experience of the summer bushfires that we just saw. Um, I did want to take us back a little bit to your time as um, Emergency Management Commissioner and when you were also working as Fire Services Commissioner, because you have that um history and understanding and even previous to that um you know you've worked in this field broadly for a long time so you know victoria here particularly locally we have seen a number of really significant fires even in you know a 30 something year old's lifetime like myself um you know i remember vividly the black saturday bushfires even um subsequent to that huge fires um, in Y River over the summer as well. So there were many points um, during your, even your term as commissioner, where we did see quite severe bushfires that um, certainly, you know, we, we prepare for, but sometimes even our preparations can't um, or won't do enough to be able to deal with what the the damage is. So I did want to ask you about your experience seeing these fires and also other natural disasters kind of accumulate and um, become increasingly more severe and more frequent and get, I guess, just a broad sense of your observations about how things have travelled from your experience looking at Victoria and coming up to, you know, a summer bushfire season, as you said, on a very warm, balmy 30-something degree day today. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. When you look back and the way you, you've sort of framed that, it, there's something that goes back in history. And, I mean, Victoria's always, or Australia's kind of a fire-prone country, so they've always had fires. But 
The frequency of them is really interesting. So if you go back in the 2000s, and I was at CFO as a deputy chief at the time, um, you know, 2002, 2003, we had fires that burnt, you know, nearly 2 million hectares of the of the Alpine National Park and the parks around it. Um, you know, burnt for days after days, but really didn't reach out into communities. It was deep-seated in the bush. However, only years after that, 2006, we had Grampians fires, and I remember the CFA strike team at 11 o'clock at night coming out of the Grampians and they got caught in a, in a firestorm that they wouldn't have expected to occur at sort of 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was dark, it was in in the night period. And the strike team leader um, thought he'd lost the whole lot of the five trucks, so it was strike team's five trucks. And they came out and his instructions was, uh, we'll all travel at the same speed. No one's taking their foot up the accelerator. Get the white line under the driver's um, view and just drive. And they drove through the head of a fire that they said they'd never seen any like it. That was 2006, and we rolled forward to what this year, and the same sort of things were happening in the, you know, the, the fires around, certainly the southern part of New South Wales. I actually think that was an early telling us that the environments were changing. The weather patterns have changed, and I can remember briefing people saying we're now seeing fires at night as aggressive as what we were seeing in the day from decades before, and something had changed. We're in the middle of a drought, so 2006 was the middle of the drought, and it went on for another, and it went on for years. Now, that the yes, people will say we've had droughts, Australia's had droughts, yes, we have, but I think now when you look back and look at the science behind it, you, we're in the middle of, of something significant, and it was the change in our climate. We mightn't have fully known it then, although we've probably been told for decades it was happening, um, but I think we saw the, the landscape change, and even now the soil dryness in many parts of Australia has never gone back to where where it's been before. So we've still got drier soils now, and that's that's a change in our clim- climatic conditions without a doubt. So those sort of things I think you've got to put in in, in understanding what we mean by climate. And, and look, I always say, if you're not a climate change believer, that's fine. But there is science to say that climate is changing, and I think we've got to observe that and understand it. And the, the other one in climate, and you know, I think we've got to probably move on to what the, the fire issues are. But climate, to me, will see more frequent, more intense weather events. So more frequent, more intense. And you look at the hailstorms at the weekend in Queensland. Classic. They went from really warm weather, um, firefighting type weather, straight into hailstorms. So and. What, what will actually happen or is happening is the extreme weather will be more extreme, the hot will be hotter, the dry will be drier, the wet will be wetter. So we'll move through these things where we will go from ex, you know, extreme floods to extreme dry conditions in drought and extreme bushfires and we'll move through them in cycles that are really fast. That's a driver of climate change. And I, and I think we can see it, we can feel it, we can understand it. The fear you've got is if this keeps going, where are we going to be in 15 years or 20 years or or whatever? Yeah, even even in four years, you know, I think mm. it's going to move that fast. That that we've definitely got to. And and I always say, look, we shouldn't be scared, but we've just got to be take this stuff serious because it is it is serious. It's changing our environment dramatically. Mm. And from your perspective, you know, I I know. 
The Black Saturday bushfires in 2009 are still very much um, in people's minds and are obviously the most recent ones as well. But your your kind of role as um, fire services commissioner was just after, and I know that you played a role in implementing some of the changes that were recommended after those bushfires. Do you think that we, as a, as a state, as a Victorian state, um, made significant progress in terms of the ways that we were approaching bushfires in particular um, and some of the important changes that were necessary after 2009 were made. And obviously, you know, this is constantly evolving and we need to continue to change and improve. But, you know, from your experience looking back, do you think that we have made substantial changes um, since that point? Oh, we have, yeah, yeah. 2009 was, um, yeah, my job was when I was put into the fire commission was just a change job. Like it was about going and make things change, change it for the better. Um, and we had momentum. We actually had the community wanted change. Yeah, you know, the media were, were chasing us down to make sure that we were driving change and supporting us. Um, governments expected it from both sides of government. It wasn't a political issue. It was, yeah, we've got a problem, let's go out and fix it. And I, and I think that was really good to see that. A bipartisan support, if that's the right, if that's the right term, to get governments that weren't playing politics, they were actually they were really focused on community outcomes, and it was it was one of the most productive parts, I think Victoria saw, uh, in many many ways. Yeah, you know, we built community fire refuges, never done first in the world. Um, we established no, neighbourhood safer places to make sure people had um, somewhere to go. And neighbourhood safer places is even interesting because in a fire, what's safe? You know, when you're in the middle of it, a place of last resort. We established, you know, personal bunkers that people could make a choice when they're building to put a bunker next door. Victoria is the only one to lead that. And seriously, I think that's a, a, an absolute game changer in the right circumstances for the right people. You know, we, we put an app in because we've got technology to do so. And the app was one of the best apps in the sense that it, it was an all-emergencies app. It wasn't just a fire app, so you could see the weather or other things. Thunderstorm Asthma, you know, on a hot mm. summer's afternoon, we could put warnings out about Thunderstorm Asthma on the same app as what was a fire app. Fantastic. Uh, you know, we changed decision-making. We brought the agencies together. We coined a thing about we work as one, and it still lives really strong today about working as one. And the we is just not the agency, the we is about the community and everyone together. So we joined things up that were never were not being done. And I think collectively what, what we did in Victoria was world leading, uh, without a doubt. California watched us, played with us, supported us. I was on a webinar in um, Phoenix only last week and the words, and there was another fellow from California, he was almost talking the Victorian talk. It was it was really interesting hearing him say the things we because uh, we we shared with them and we made sure we learnt from them but they learnt from us mm. shared responsibility that it wasn't a brain game it wasn't pointing at people it was about bringing things together so the warning system that that now the the next royal commissioner said we need to take in another step but we put that in to get a, a consistent warning system lots done lots done but it's one of these things that evolves because. Yeah, when you do it, and I will say that I think Victoria led the way um, because they felt it experienced and lost 173 people in an afternoon and, you know, 2,500 homes, 5,000 people without a place to sleep. You know, it, was, it's, it, it, it really did resonate that Victoria led it and we did it. And when I say we, it wasn't, it wasn't a small group of people. It was a big group of people that were really committed and supported at every level. So it was fantastic. Um, yeah. But, again... 
Victoria's Royal Commission, not every other part of Australia picked everything up. Because sometimes they, it was almost like, oh, you know, it won't happen to us or mm. that's your problem in Victoria. You know, it was interesting. Some things were picked up globally. There was other things that weren't. And even, you know, I, I, don't, I'm, I never wanted to judge people, but you think, gee, you missed an opportunity there. A couple of other states didn't do things that we would do. But on the same token, if you look at Queensland, bushfire hasn't been a, the biggest threat that they, they have. Queensland's normally a cyclone a big wind event with a cyclone or a big rain event with flood. Mm. And I spent some time working for Queensland Fire and Emergency Service last year where they had fires that had been so destructive and burnt rainforests that have never had fires in them. And you're talking about, you know, rainforests that are now destructive, that, you know, fire went in and dis- was caused so much destruction in a rainforest that's normally, you know, full of moisture. <laughs> so that and that was a real telling point to me to say things are changing dramatically when you start to burn rainforests to that extent. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It, so Queensland now have got a, a bushfire um, problem that they never had or never thought they had for for decades, and that's where we're seeing the change in this climate and the change in vegetation, fuel management. You know, there's lots to this because it's just not climate. Climate's one of the key drivers, but there's also policy about land management, fuel management, where we live. We've got increased population, more people are living close to the bush. You know, so we've got to look at the way we build and live close to the bush. It, it, it is complex. It is complex. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it does take me to one of those other areas that um, I'm sure you also were f- are familiar with and were familiar with um, overseeing. And I know that this also became a, a big talking point over the summer and no doubt will be part of any strategy moving forward. And that was looking at um, the volunteer firefighting groups and services like the RFS in New South Wales, like the CFA in Victoria, Um, which are volunteer services. Um, There are some paid uh, employees in the CFA, uh, for example, down in regional Victoria. But now that we are seeing these bushfires um, increasing in duration and the bushfire season starting earlier and, um, you know, large fires burning out for a very long time, um, you know, having these volunteer firefighters, um, you know, they were so taxed over the summer you know there were so many people who had no break um, and they were all volunteers and taking time out of work and requiring requiring wage subsidies from the government um, so that they could continue to do this important work Um, so one of the things I did want to ask from this uh, a regional Victoria and rural Victoria perspective um, was that I know that you know my family you know played a key role in establishing a CFA in a very you know rural um, area and and in these areas where I know people still live of my family they say you know it's really hard to maintain these smaller CFAs um, that that are completely volunteer-led and how do we continue to support them and I know that the Victorian way of doing things has just recently changed and it's become Fire Rescue Victoria but I did want to ask from your perspective how you think that would work and it will work in upcoming bushfire seasons where we do see these bushfires breaking out um, obviously in metro or outer suburban areas but still very much also in areas like Gippsland which is a country area um, you know, and and whether we are 
thinking enough and whether this Royal Commission um, has addressed that uh, key role of the volunteer firefighter, particularly in these more rural areas? Yeah, that's a that's a complex one. The, the fundamental principles of a community is to have people that participate in the community, and one of the one of the greatest things is to have organisations like the CFA or the New South Wales RFS that allow people to really hop in and participate in protecting their community, um, coming together as groups and building that that true team approach. Now, you know, CFA is one of them. SES is another. The local footy club and what the Royal Commission. Um, I think I've captured in this one is about community resilience. And if you want to have a resilient community, you've got to have an engaged and connected community and you've got to have organisations that appreciate people and give them purpose. Now, in volunteers, there's three terms, I think, that are important. One is volunteers, the person who volunteers. Volunteering is the activity they volunteer to do and volunteerism is the culture they bring. And I think we haven't spent enough and we this will be this will be really fundamental if we're not careful, is to understand the culture of these communities and and you, you think you know that it, not every community is diverse. It, you know, if I live in mm. South Melbourne, I'm, I'm very much different as a diverse community than if I live in, and, and I shouldn't pick out a little country town, but some you know some farming community that simply probably got a fire station left as their community centre point where they might have had years ago a school there, a public hall. And even some of the some of the communities now are clever enough to say our fire station is our public hall. It's a place where we come together. So the cent the the, um, the centre of of what it is, it's all about community. And volunteering is a really important part of the community. And you know, I, I think um, and I've watched the structural change in Victoria, and I do get that you know we're in growth and there's got to be. You know, a fire risk in Victoria that's more focused on the urban environments and the growth in the outer metropolitan areas. But any government that fails to acknowledge what CFA and the other volunteer organisations need will be a failure of significance. And we've got to do better at that. And we've got to do better to bring people together. Now, in there, you've got a lot of challenges because not everyone's in growth. Like the, Australia's growing in population, but not every corner of, of the of of Australia is growing. Some some communities are in decline. Yeah. Some communities are, you know, at you know, static level. But and, and that's something we need to be really clever about. But um, how do you work with communities that may, you know, may not be the the hub that they used to be for all sorts of reasons? However, they're still a community and they've still got a heart and they've still got people and they need um, support from governments and others to make them successful. But the other thing about one of the most successful things about volunteers is don't over-prescribe it. Give them freedom. Let them be full of initiative. Let them do things that that they, they can do. Give them structures, support them, acknowledge them, but make sure we're diverse. One of the one of the challenges is to make sure some of these – and you'll get it in football clubs. Uh, you know, I've watched regional football where they've changed from, you know, football clubs 20 years ago to be football netball clubs. And that's, to me, been a really successful model to get, um, you know, where it's not it's not netball playing at one end of town and football played at the other end of town. We bring it together, and it's, it's, it hasn't just happened. It's been over the last two decades that it's happened. So all of a sudden you've got um, more... The football club is now dealing with a, a more of a diverse community, more inclusive. They're all really important things. 
that we'll also got to get some of the more traditional cultures to be understanding of what that means and make sure that it's successful. Because, you know, if I'm the new community member and I knock on the door and I, I haven't got a traditional name in the community, I should be still as welcome as the person that's been, you know, the fifth generation in that community. And I think there are some challenges there that we do need to, to step up to. But in the main, what, what you're asking is absolutely spot on. You know, the strength of these organisations is volunteers and the strength of community is volunteers. Mm. And is the heart of a community, particularly in these rural areas, is the CFA. And that's why I think, Absolute. yeah, when we saw these um, issues around, you know, tension between the MFB and the CFA, it did get a lot of people very emotionally invested because of um, the people in regional and rural Victoria's do feel so invested and so connected to their community through the CFA. But it's also disrespectful. I mean, mm. to actually have conflict between um, two organisations that deliver the same basic services to a community, we need to get out of that. We, we need to we need to show absolute respect for what people contribute, whether they're, you, you know, whether you're paid or not, you're still professional. A volunteer yeah. might not be paid, but they still come to the table with a professional attitude and do everything they're asked and probably more. Mm. Uh, and that doesn't matter. Yeah. So I think I think that debate is is still a little bit raw in Victoria, mm. uh, but CFA needs to be fully supported. And you know, I, I know the, the current chief of, of uh, CFA, Gary Cook, who's you know grew up on a farm at Edai. You know, um, what his father was a captain of the brigade. He was there was five boys in the family, all of them in the fire brigade. They still are today. Yeah, and and Gary's moved from obviously the farming community to be the the, the chief of CFI at the moment, and you know he, he knows exactly what it takes to build communities, uh, and they're the, they're the sort of leadership people you need in those roles, as people that actually feel it, understand it, commit to it, and want people to be successful in in the roles they they participate with. Yeah, so it's really important. Mm, absolutely, and I know that um, you were a former Hamilton CFA deputy regional officer, so um, you know I quite connected in with so many different um, rural Victorians and Victorian areas, given your role as well um, after that uh, with the state-led coordination. Um, Moving to the Bushfire um, Royal Commission's recommendations, the final report was just released. um, And I think it's very timely, as you said, not just because we are heading into another bushfire season, but it does bring to mind... The, dis- the kind of discussions that we were seeing um, when you and Greg Mullins and your colleagues from the Emergency Leaders for Climate Action came out, um, and I remember watching the press conference myself in November 2019, I think it was, um, and you were talking about the fact that, you know, what you were saying had fallen on deaf ears, and this was before we really saw the the kind of effects of the summer bushfire season we just saw. Um, and so I think a lot of people felt quite um, galvanised when they had former commissioners with such great expertise and experience um, feeling confident to advocate to government, to advocate to other departments and commissions and inquiries um, because, you know, you were doing things that were potentially, unfortunately now, seen as political, even though they're certain climate change should not be a, a political issue, um, an ideological issue, but they certainly have now had that layer 
um, placed upon them. And so you're voicing these concerns from the community, but also from a position of expertise, I think was quite well received. So I wanted to understand now, given that you've um, been advocating with um, your fellow emergency leaders for climate action um, for quite a while, and the initial group has expanded um, quite substantially as well, when you when you were talking about this um, royal commission and when it was being established, we were talking about the terms of reference were they broad enough. Now looking at the final report from the experience and and the position that you were in, you know, last year, have we made progress? Have we seen some shifts in the language in the? ideas in the recommendations. Um, obviously, the commission is an independent commission, um, but the, the federal government and state governments will clearly be looking to this um, Royal Commission for their next steps. So from your perspective, maybe from a broad perspective, and if there are in individual areas you think that they've um, particularly made great progress on, I'd be really keen to hear your thoughts. Yeah, look, I think the first one is we, when we formed that group, we were very respectful of the current chiefs and commissioners because we knew that they had a job to do and they would be briefing ministers and the, you know, the, they, they've got a political responsibility to brief up as well. But we also knew there'd be something they may not have been able to say or they may not have been able to pursue. So that's why we said we'll come together and do it. And, and I think I think it's been an effective group. Uh, we're also very diverse in, in the group that's in there, um, in a sense, we've all got fire backgrounds, but some are really focused on public land for forest management, um, right through to you know, probably Greg and myself that have got a really broad aspect of where we've been and what we've done. So, so that was important to get the context of that. And we weren't political, however, we were seen by some because the Climate Chance Council was the one that you know said, "Hey, we'll, we'll help you do some things. Come together." So, put that aside. Um, I think we did. Uh, I hopefully we did it respectfully, but sometimes the issues were pretty raw, so it was fairly as a matter of fact, but I think that had to be said. Um, and, you know, we were lucky enough we could probably see something coming. It was happening, and not a lot of people were listening in some key places. So it did need a bit of a rattle of the cage, and we got that. We then ran some workshops ourselves to make sure that it was broader than us, and we ran, you know, four major workshops over 150 um, written applications to our group that we then formulated and sent to the Royal Commission as well. And also a number of us were summoned by the Royal Commission to to give our own personal um, submissions and the questions that they wanted us to answer. So we've, we've had lots of input to the Royal Commission. The thing about the Royal Commission, I think it's, it's a very good report. It's comprehensive, it's broad. Uh, it's extremely detailed, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages. Uh, and it also highlights that there's lots of things still to fix, and some of them are complex. You know, fuel management yeah. in this country, land, land management and fuel management will always be a debated issue, and probably rightly so, because, you know, and I have an opinion that the worst thing we can do is, is see what happened last year where we get the fires so intense that they would go through the bush and they completely destroy the bush to the point where when that bush grows back, it will not be the same. It won't be the same. Um, we've killed so much wildlife. We've threatened communities. We were lucky, lucky to only lose 33 lives. And when I say that, it's tragic to be one of those family members that have lost a loved one. But the potential of fires could have killed hundreds and hundreds of people. So... The warning systems worked, and that's an outcome of the 09 fires. But 
the Royal Commission itself now has got their next challenge is how do they implement this and how do they get the federal government, and there's some things that are federal government responsibilities and there's other that are state government responsibilities, how do we, how do we get them funded, how are they going to be implemented in a timely way, and this won't be just you know, over a number of months. This has got years in it in many instances. Um, broad, and, and I think the Royal Commission's done really well, but the devil's in the detail of how to achieve it now. Now, without going into detail, I'll summarise. You know, they, they identified climate was a key driver. They've gone to land, fuel and fire management issues, complex issues, including how to introduce Indigenous burning, which is a low-intensity fire regime that won't work in every type of landscape. Interoperability across agencies, across states, across borders. A number of the border issues have been brought out that, you know, all of a sudden the Albury-Wodonga community every day participate and act with each other every day. It comes to a fire and we, we close borders and all of a sudden they can't interact with each other and the health services are restricted and you can't get over there, all sorts of things. Um, what the Commonwealth's got to do, and the Commonwealth was criticised that they didn't step in, but the legislation didn't allow them to step in, which is really interesting. Everyone went, well, you know, where, where's the Commonwealth? But the legislation didn't allow them and in the end it was almost a forced hand between the states and the, well, the premiers and the prime minister to to get the ADF involved in a number of things. Mm. So they've gone to fix that. Uh, early detection, I think, is really important. We've got to be smarter at detecting fires early, and we've got towers and triple O. You know, you're in triple O now, but there's got to be some other systems in there, and we've got to use aircraft more effectively to keep, what I say, all fire, all, all fires should be kept small to allow the ground crews to get in and do what they've got to do, which is what you talked about before, about effective use of volunteers. And the worst thing we can do is not have enough resources to keep a small fire small. And the aircraft does that. An aircraft normally doesn't put a fire out. What it does is it brings it to some level of containment that the ground crews can get in and do the work they've got to do. Uh, we've got to look at the built environment, and, there's some, and I've been involved with the Bushfire um, Building Council of Australia to look at ways to assist communities to better um, assess their properties in a more informed way of how then to apply solutions. You know, when you're building a, putting a deck on the back of a house, uh, you know, build it in a way that it's fire resistant because quite often the landscape or the deck or the steps outside of the thing that catch fire first and then burn the house down. So how do we, how do we, we know these things. So we, we've done some work with CSIRO, how do we improve those things? And I think the ones that um, I found really good in the, in the Royal Commission, it was all good, but... Is it went to community resilience, as I mentioned before. It's gone to recovery, um, and many of the other Royal Commissions have missed those parts, the recovery bit, they looked at the preparedness response but not the recovery. And it's gone to the, the mental health issues of what fire, what trauma brings in a mental health way, and it's also talked about air quality. And, you know, we've got... In our summer, we've got heat and heat waves, we've got bushfires, and we've got smoke. And the figures in the report confirmed that 429 people died above the normal death rates directly related from uh, smoke and respiratory issues. Now, that's a staggering figure, yeah. a staggering figure, I think, to see that all of a sudden we need better warning systems and better advice to people about smoke. Mm. And, you, you know, you think about it, if you go to New South Wales, and I'll use New South Wales so it's not a Victorian story, but... 
Now, the Blue Mountains is on fire. The people that live in downtown Sydney go, oh, isn't it bad that the Blue Mountains is on fire? However, this year, not only were the Blue Mountains on fire, most of New South Wales is on fire, and the urban areas, the downtown Sydney area of Wollongong and Newcastle, let alone Canberra, were covered in smoke day after day, night after night, and it seriously impacted on the health um, outcomes of, of metropolitan areas. So all of a sudden, the people that are living in downtown Mossman were going, these fires are really terrible, you know, <laughs> because they were being impacted by smoke, whereas before it was that sort of sympathy, and I'm, I'm not being, I'm almost, I'm not being disrespectful when I say this at all, but it, it's almost it was someone else's problem, the fires up the hill, mm. but when the smoke's there day after day, it was then it was in their backyard and it became their problem as well. So, yes. And I've done work in California and, you know, San Francisco gets very, very, very focused. The Bay Area gets very focused on air quality, like seriously focused on air quality. And they will say to the governor over there, you put these fires out. We've had day after day of smoke. Enough's enough. So I think we're seeing a change in the community about, um, you know, our understanding of our own health issues to deal with smoke, let alone bushfires, let alone heat. So, yeah, so, so it, it, it's, this is what I keep saying. It's complex. Mm. We shouldn't be scared of it. We've just got to take it serious to understand that this is all impacting on us in some way. Mm. Yes. So, well, yeah. That's such a great point. I really am glad that you brought up um, bushfire smoke because I know that, um, you know, there were pregnant women who were concerned because that re- increases the risk of their babies being born prematurely. Um, and we did say, uh, you did mention there that up to 429 premature deaths, 3,320 hospital admissions for cardiovascular and respiratory conditions, um, 1,523 presentations to emergency departments for asthma. And what was also quite staggering to me was the health costs of smoke exposure just from those bushfires resulted in $1.95 billion in health costs, um, which is staggering as well. So, yeah, it it was something I think we all took for granted, which was, well, of course we'll have good quality air um, and and this couldn't possibly be longer than a day or so. And because it dragged out for so long and masks were running out, um, N95 masks were running out and people were rushing to buy air purifiers, it really did bring home the fact that these um, bushfire seasons are going to affect us in more than one way. And then they're going to be far more than the way that we have seen them, you know, affect property, affect life, affect um, wildlife as well. Um, that, yeah, it was quite shocking to see the sustained effects of a, a, about 19 weeks worth of continuous fire activity. Um, I did want to ask yep. about then thinking forward and looking at these recommendations and as you say it is um the report is 594 pages long um and there's a lot a lot more to it as well with addendums but um I did want to say in terms of looking at the upcoming bushfire season and looking at the recommendations and the priorities obviously the headline is climate change is making these um, bushfires, you know, accelerate, um, they're increasing in severity and duration, and that the federal government and all governments 
and the community has to address climate change. Um, but what are some of those other things that we should be thinking about? I know you've mentioned that there's complexity um, and perhaps long-term structural change, but what are some of the things we immediately should think about um, with the upcoming bushfire season? And perhaps we already have, hopefully, thinking about things like you know aerial firefighting capabilities. We all learned just how much you need to plan ahead for that. Um, but you know, how much have we learned and do we need, what are some of the things that we should be thinking about with this report um, in the short to medium term? Yeah, look, it's really easy. I've had that asked to be a number of times. If I go back as a community member, um, one is I think it comes back to know your risk, um, know what to do, be, be proactive about you and your community, you and your family and your community about what you're going to do when there's bushfires. This year we've had rain. It's going to be more of a traditional season in the sense that the fires will be more attached to the, you know, the traditional summer months, December, January, February. Mm-hmm. Grass fires this year I think will be fast moving, so there's plenty of growth in the grasslands and not all of that will be cut. A lot of the farmers will cut, but there'll still be grass around. Uh, and you know, Australia, Victoria will always have a day, a series of days that's extremely hot extremely windy and therefore the bushfire risk is there. They're the days you've got to make decisions and, you know, one, have a plan, two, make sure you know where to get the information. You know, good an early decision is a good decision when it comes to fires. Uh, and, you know, where are you going to do Who's the vulnerable community members? And it changes. You know, if the kids are at school, it's a different plan than if we're away on holidays. So the December plan compared to the January plan compared to the February plan is important to think through in that sense. Mm. You know, I'm down the beach, I'm on holidays, but I've still got a risk of fire versus I'm back at school and the kids are going to be out of school at you know, 10 past three, who's picking them up, all those sorts of things. So so all of those is about circumstances and your ability to do things. So, so, so I always say that the plan's important, but the plan's got to be able to deal with the circumstances and you need to know where to get information. You know, we live in a world that it's, it's just in time information in our, in our palms. Get the right apps. The Victorian Emergency Apps one. The Bureau app is important, I think, to understand weather conditions and certainly look at four days out. Don't just plan the night before. Plan every four days, look at the cycle and go, where are we going to be? You know, what's coming? Well, Saturday's going to be the hot, windy day. Okay, what are we going to do Friday about Saturday? Those sort of things are important. Um, that's the practical stuff. Uh, we can do those things. The Royal Commission will, um, some of the recommendations will help us do those things. The other things are like you mentioned aircraft. Like, you know, in the in the report, it talks about building an industry. I fully support that. Uh, an Australian-based air, you know, firebombing aviation industry that's bigger than we've currently got. Um, and the reason for that is that. The large air tankers that do travel the globe, you know, the, the large helicopters and large fixed wings, um, they're, they're under pressure to be all over the place. You know, they're, they're in South America. Oh, I know at the moment there's aircraft in, in India, uh, sorry, Indonesia, uh, California, Bolivia, Chile, that would all circle the globe and come to Australia at some point in time. Mm-hmm. Those seasons are getting are getting longer in other parts of the world. That's why we need to build some capability that is owned and operated in Australia, create jobs in Australia, and then, you know, in our off-season, borrow it out to other parts of the world. But let's build something that is Australia. We're one of the biggest fire-prone countries in the world, and we should be doing it. And, you know, that's also about building jobs. You know, it's it's an industry approach, which is fantastic. 
Mm, so absolutely. I think there's a lot there's a lot there. This year, the Royal Commission will have limited impact on the way in which we fight fire because it's only been published. That's why I think people need to get back about their circumstances and use the systems that are there today to help them to make decisions. Yeah, that's really such a great point that you're talking about circumstances and how they change you know, month to month, week to week, even day to day. So um, that's something that I think when you're putting together a fire plan, you may make it quite universal and not realise that you need to take into account all of these variations. Absolutely. Especially, you know, if you, you think of the family, how dynamic a family is now. Even what you're doing on a Friday is totally different than what you do on a Saturday. So just the day of the week. Yeah. <laughs> and then remember that fire, fires don't just burn because of the conditions we're seeing in the afternoon. And I think that's a traditional thing that everyone thinks, oh, the worst bit will be at four o'clock in the afternoon. It's not. The conditions now are conducive that fires will run hard in the night and through the night. And, yeah, we've seen that over the last, we talked about it before, over the last, you know, two decades um, of, of the change of fire behaviour that isn't just an afternoon issue. It's, it's certainly, it's beyond that. Yeah. yeah. Um, Craig, I'm so grateful to you for chatting and to share your deep expertise and knowledge and also um, to give us insights we couldn't possibly have from anyone else except someone in your really um, excellent position of knowledge. So I'm really grateful to you for taking the time out to chat with us today. And I'm sure I have many other questions I won't get to ask, unfortunately, but um, I am grateful that you're advocating as you are with your colleagues, the Emergency Leaders for Climate Action, um, who include Greg Mullins and Neil Bibby and a number of others, um, so many, in fact, that it's almost, I think, around 34 people in the group now. Um, so thank you for doing um, a great work of uh, communicating with us still, even in your um, retirement from at least being the commissioner. And, um, yeah, I hope that you have a safe and um, and hopefully enjoyable uh, summer and hopefully not too many um, bushfires, but, you know, we'll have to wait and see. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.